Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. We've got a special episode for you today, but before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is the last episode of the podcast that is going to appear under the current iTunes or Stitcher Radio On Demand feed. We've moved the podcast to a different podcast host, which means you're going to have to change your RSS feed in order to get the new episodes. We were working on establishing the new feed on iTunes, but it may take a while. In the meantime, you can listen to or download episodes of the podcast at our website, gangrythepodcast.com. We've got newer episodes featuring Glenn Stout, Kim Cross, and Robert Sanchez, among many others, on the site, so go ahead and go check it out. Now on with today's show, which will consist of just one segment. I'm going to talk to Chuck Klosterman. Klosterman is one of my favorite writers, and in the last two issues of GQ magazine, he has interviewed Taylor Swift and Tom Brady. He's also interviewed Kobe Bryant and Eddie Van Halen this year. Klosterman's interviews with celebrities are always interesting to read because they delve far deeper than I would imagine most celebrities are used to. He does a great job of parsing what they say in these interviews and figuring out a deeper meaning. Sometimes that helps the reader understand the celebrity more. Other times, though, it offers insight into our own minds. Klosterman has written six books of nonfiction and two novels. His most recent book, I Wear the Black Hat, Grappling with Villains, Real and Imagined, was a New York Times bestseller. He's written for Esquire, GQ, Spin, The Washington Post, The Guardian, The Believer, and The AV Club. He currently serves as the ethicist for the New York Times Magazine. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Klosterman's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Chuck, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Hey, can we start by talking about um, one of your more recent uh, pieces, an interview you did with Tom Brady uh, that is in the most recent issue of GQ magazine? Um, you, you described uh, just recently you did a, a podcast with Bill Simmons. Uh, you described some of the, the issues that came up with that story um, or th- that interview itself. Can you talk a little bit about what that piece was, what you were hoping to get out of that piece, and then maybe what happened? Uh, well, you know, I got asked by GQ actually in June to do a profile of Tom Brady. And I do less journalism than I used to, but, uh, you know, uh, Brady is an interesting figure to me, plus because of the situation with Deflategate, which is a minor infraction, but sort of a, a significant issue in terms of how he is perceived and how the New England Patriot organization is perceived, I was like, great, okay. But because all these things were going on, Brady got back to GQ and he was like, uh, we shouldn't do this now. Well, here at the end of the year, they want to name him Man of the Year. Uh, and Brady, for whatever reason, uh, is also very interested in having that title. I think maybe because he realizes or is told one of the other uh, Men of the Year is Barack Obama. So regardless of how he feels politically, pretty much a good signifier that this is something that I guess he wants. Um, uh, so I, I get told by GQ, hey, we're going to finally do this. Do you want to do this interview with Brady? And I'm like, well, okay. Uh, the only thing that I need to know is that I can 
sort of ask anything, that, that everything is sort of available to be uh, uh, discussed, because, you know, particularly in a glossy magazine like that, when they name someone Man of the Year or Woman of the Year or Artist of the Year, at times... Uh, the piece is really just kind of puffs, and they're just like, well, we want to celebrate this person, they'll sell magazines. But I'm not going to do that, obviously. And their GQ is very much like, well, of course, that's why we're asking you. It's like, nothing is off the table. Like, their agent has assured us that anything uh, is uh, available to be questioned about. And that, I thought, well, okay, great. So then uh, GQ does the photo shoot at Brady's house. And it's a, a very sort of extensive, uh, ex, you know, expensive shoot. Uh, and if you get the magazine, you'll kind of see the photos that go with it. They're pretty crazy. Um, and that's finished. So then I'm, the interview's coming up. Well, first I'm going to interview them in person, and they kind of back out of that. And the reasons they give are very curious. The reasons they give actually imply that uh, this conversation is going to be very volatile and is going to address a lot of sort of uh, kind of bombastic issues with Deflategate. Uh, and then uh, it becomes a phone interview, and Brady calls me on a Tuesday, and then seconds into the interview, I can just tell this is not going to be the scenario that was promised because he won't even kind of speak candidly about things that don't matter at all. So then when I move on to the Deflategate stuff, it's just like basically driving a car into a brick wall. There's just nothing there. He's not mm-hmm. going to say anything. He wouldn't even... Uh, sort of agree that we could talk about Deflategate stuff in a personal, non-specific issue. Like, he, he, he wasn't going to talk about anything. So then the story, essentially, as an interview, collapses. Well, GQ is extremely upset about this. GQ feels that Tom Brady betrayed them. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I think that they came very close to just canceling the whole thing, despite having invested all these money, you know, in, in these photographs and... I was like, well, hey, look, you know, the interview didn't work, but I do think he's the best quarterback of all time, and I think that his unwillingness to talk about this is still an interesting idea. So how about I write an essay about this? Mm -hmm. I'll write an essay about this. I'll put essentially the failed interview in Q&A form in the middle of the piece so people can see what happened, and um, I'll just sort of do something that's a little more creative, and that ended up being what ran. Were Were you surprised that they said yes to that? No, I was not. No? I, I feel like, because, you know, uh, if I had just said, hey, I don't want to interview Tom Brady, I just want to write about him, I think they would have been maybe open to that, too, because they could always find someone else to just do kind of a straightforward Q&A with mm-hmm. the guy where nothing serious is asked. Um, I, I, so I wasn't surprised. I, I, I could tell that they were, in fact, pretty happy when I sort of came up with this idea mm-hmm. and said that I could still do it, despite the fact that, as a profile, it is a failure. Do you think, um, and this is one thing I'm always curious about, um, because I've talked with uh, Vanessa Gregoriatis, who, who writes um, some really good celebrity profiles, and, mm-hmm. and she has said that there are times when celebrities will back out of something because she is the reporter attached to it. Did they? Did Tom Brady's people know that you were going to be the person interviewing him from the start? According to their uh, to his agent, yes. And and that and this is part of the reason why there was this sort of ingrained assumption that this might be the piece where Deflategate is really discussed and explained. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier this year, I had done a piece on Kobe Bryant, uh, and in that 
interview, Bryant talked about a lot of things that he had never talked about before in a way that was just sort of disarmingly candid. And clearly the people in Brady's camp knew of that piece. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they knew I was going to ask these things. Um, there is some opinion at GQ, and I don't know if this is true, because remember, I don't work for GQ. Right. I'm a free agent. I just work for who asked me. There is some belief there that they kind of straight up lied and said, we will talk about anything, make us man of the year, let's take these photographs, and then they had no intention of ever having a real conversation, knowing that by the time I interviewed Brady, it was pretty close to the deadline. Mm -hmm. Like, I interviewed him on Tuesday. I had to get them the piece by Friday, Mm -hmm. uh, which meant that the magazine was sort of structurally already planned. Right. Um... So it's possible that, you know, in a sense, this is proof that uh, Brady is kind of brilliant. Right. That he was able right. to be named Man of the Year by a magazine uh, based who believed he was going to say something interesting and he never had any intention to do so. Now, of course, this puts a lot of, that kind of makes him almost seem diabolical. Maybe he has no interest in any of this and it's just the people around him. I have no idea. But it was surprising, although not shocking. Right. It's funny because with the Kobe interview, you went in and you even said that in the piece, you went in expecting to really get nothing and you got this amazing, you know, conversation. Uh, and then the exact opposite happened with Brady. Does that happen a lot to you where you you're expecting one thing and then then the exact opposite happens? When you when you're well, interviewing but, when you're interviewing celebrities or, or whoever? I think when you interview a celebrity, particularly like a major figure, someone who uh, isn't doing a ton of interviews to promote either a product or themselves, somebody who knows that the interview really is about themselves and sort of the place they will occupy in the culture, Mm -hmm. that uh, if the person is willing to do that, there is sort of uh, a suspicion that uh, it will be hard, but what you're really trying to do is, uh, well, I'm kind of doing a bad job of explaining this, but what you do, you know it's going to be um, a combination of just total artifice with a few grains of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And you're doing the whole sort of fake interaction of me being the reporter and them being the celebrity and me asking questions I could never ask if I was just a normal person, them spending time with me that they would never spend if I was a normal person. You're going through kind of all this falseness to just try to get these little moments where they say something that kind of transcends the shell that they have built as a public identity. And those little grains that slip through, that kind of becomes the whole story. Mm-hmm. And that, at least that's the way I view it. I mean, I, I, when I talk to somebody like that, my idea is to find the, like the one or two or three things that will allow a consumer to actually sort of consume their art differently mm-hmm. because now they can inject something real into this product that is uh, kind of impossible to penetrate in any other context. Right, and that's what. And then you, you. It seems to me when I when I read your your work, especially these types of interviews, that's what you do is you find that grain, and then you kind of expound, you expand upon that, or you know, really investigate its meaning. Um, and it just seems like to me like that would be horribly frightening for anybody who has a brand. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm sure that there are. I'm trying to think of other. There have been examples of this. You know, Madonna was like that. Like, I was going to do an interview with Madonna for Billboard magazine, and when they found out that I was doing it, uh, they declined. Now, is it because it was me? I'm sure that was not the whole reason. Was it part of the reason? Possibly. Do you, um, with Taylor Swift, um, while we're kind of on this this line, what what was what was that like? Did do you feel like you got any any grains from her? Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, the thing is that there was sort of a a very clear preconceived notion of what Taylor Swift is like as a person, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel that the interview I did with her um, sort of. Uh, validated that perception. In other words, this thing that people had just thought but didn't really know, um, and these are both positive and negative qualities. I think that a lot of the things that people thought about Taylor Swift but could not really um, objectively say to be the case, that ended up being in the story. So, I mean, like, I think that though there have been many, many, many stories written about Taylor Swift, that was probably the closest to someone being able to say, well, her image is X. What do we actually have to prove that that image is uh, justifiable? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, and now, granted, now she's a she's a little, you know, age plays a role in this. I mean, Taylor Swift is twenty five. Mm-hmm. She views media very differently than say, oh, okay, I interviewed Jimmy Page last year. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page uh, comes from the generation of musicians who actually sort of sees media the way it is portrayed in the movie Almost Famous, that he seems to think it, that it is only something that can hurt him, mm-hmm. and that every question I ask Jimmy Page, he perceives as a potential trap. Whereas uh, Taylor Swift is not like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Taylor Swift sort of sees her own iconography and her media presence as deeply intertwined with uh, you know, the music and, and that the people who buy and love her music are also interested in her as a person. So she wants to talk to me. She wants to do the interview. She just wants to be very careful as in terms of what she says and, and how that will sort of ripple in to other aspects of her perception. Whereas Jimmy Page doesn't want to say anything, but the things he does say, he doesn't really care, you know, if they reflect negatively mm-hmm. negatively on him right so. yeah one of the the great pieces the great parts of, of, of the taylor swift story i think is when she gets that call from timber uh justin timberlake uh and you're just in their car there, kind of <laughs> writing down everything that's being said at least on her end um and I, one of the reasons i think that's so good is because that that seems like something that couldn't have been planned or calculated to use that word even you know what i mean you know i hope that's the case um <laughs> <laughs> I hope that she didn't go into the bathroom before we got in her car and texted Justin Timberlake and said, call me in 10 minutes. I don't think that happened. Her response seemed very genuine. Um, but you never totally know, you know. Um, well, that would be pretty uh, amazing if she actually did that as well. <laughs> what? That would be pretty amazing if she actually did that as well, just in terms well, of sheer... here's the thing. Here's the only reason that even a fraction of my mind considers that. I know someone else who interviewed uh, Taylor Swift in the past, and through a mutual friend, I was informed that an a, 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 a eerily similar event mm-hmm. happened 
when this person had interviewed her, uh, the call coming from Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that, I was like, well, it's possible. I mean, I, but it's one of these things where if someone is actually constructing events for you, well, that's also telling. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, it, it's uh, it, it's almost to their credit. I mean, then the whole thing, you know, some people see being interviewed as a performance. I mm-hmm. mean, Marilyn Manson, when you interview Marilyn Manson, he... Uh, takes on the character that he portrays in videos and, and on stage, and, and it makes for um, a, a very interesting, fun experience. I mean, it was the same way, like, you know, uh, the comedian Andy Kaufman, uh, he used to go on David Letterman, and he always had sort of a bit to do. He didn't come out and just talk about whatever he was doing. He had sort of a constructed thing. And uh, as a public figure, that construction is not necessarily a weakness. It, it sort of just validates that that you are an entertainer. I mean, the thing with Taylor Swift, too, though, is that, like, you know, in that story, it starts with that phone call, being in her car, going to her place and stuff. Uh, it's kind of ironic because... Prior to doing this, really around the time I did the Kobe story, maybe even a little before that, I had come to this conclusion that, like, I'm not writing scenes anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, features usually start with this scene, and it's just this totally fake thing. Like, a, like I, I interviewed uh, uh, Tom Morello, the guy from Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine for Spin, and they had constructed this event for us where we walked around like an arcade and while we were walking around the arcade, he literally said, like, so this is the part of the story where we talk about being in an arcade together. Like, he, he, even he could sense mm-hmm. that this was a fake scene. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what? No more fake scenes. I'm just going to sit down with these people and ask them the questions. I want to get answered, and that's going to be the piece. If people remember the writing from the piece, that means it failed. What mm-hmm. they should remember is what the person said and what they talked about. But then the thing with Taylor Swift happened, and it was so bizarre. This, I mean, and, and actually was a spontaneous thing. Like, I did not assume any part of our conversation from the car ride would be in the story. I was like, it's too good to pass up. Mm-hmm. So then that story ends up starting with a scene, uh, which is kind of the antithesis of what I was hoping to do, but probably ended up making the story better. Right. Um what is uh, you 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 do a lot of of pieces on musicians or or, or athletes um what what is it about those two groups of people that you find interesting Well I mean I like sports and I like music that's about as far as it goes right. I mean if if somebody had said if GQ had asked me to do the Q&A with Barack Obama on that issue I'd love to do it mm-hmm. I don't really see uh parameters in terms of what I cover I mean I when I was kind of got into this business initially, you know, in the mid-90s, there was still kind of this, like, hard firewall between, say, sports and music. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that was because it went way back to um, sort of the period in the 60s and 70s where a lot of people who were into music felt alienated from what they considered to be jock culture. Mm-hmm. And that they sort of thought, well, boy, if I'm into Husker Du or whatever, like the football team wants to beat me up. I never had that experience. Like uh, for me, I, I never had an experience where my interest in sports and my interest in rock music ever had any sort of problematic collision. Um, and then, you know, uh, you started to see this sort of seep into the identity of 
particularly the musicians themselves. I mean, like a, like Stephen Melkness from Pavement. I did a profile on him, and we spent a large percentage of the conversation talking about his fantasy basketball team. And there became this I, kind of this uh, culture in indie rock, where these indie rock guys were into sports, usually baseball, but sports in general. And then, of course, because of the rise of hip-hop culture, uh, you, it then started coming from, you know, the athlete side, and that, that athletes aspired to have a relationship with hip-hop artists because they saw themselves as very similar people, as very often as African-American athletes in a celebrity culture who had managed to sort of break out of the, the paradigm that uh, a lot of their peers were trapped into through their greatness, and they saw sort of a connection between rap culture and NBA culture, for example. So now there doesn't seem to be any difference. Now it does not seem weird at all that I write about music and I write about mm-hmm. sports, although when I started doing this, as far as I could tell, I was the only one doing it. Right. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't the only, only one, but I was certainly seemed to be the only person kind of on a national level doing it as regularly as I did. Right. Um, sorry, I'm looking at my sheet here, and I'm going to have to probably edit out my stupidity right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, leave it in. What? what uh, yeah, I should. I should. I'll just. Good. Yeah, they, they like that. Right. You right. Know, that's <laughs> about podcasting. That's yeah, I flipped radio. the page, and I just People my brain like went blank for how it's put together. Yeah. Right. I I typically don't edit anything in these, so the, I, I yeah I should leave that in. Right. Yeah. Um Can you talk? Uh, were, were you um. Were you surprised by anything about Taylor Swift when, when you sat down and talked with her? I mean, I think it kind of comes through that maybe you were a little bit in, in the piece. Um, but, like, just off the top of your head, anything that really jumped out at you that maybe you weren't expecting? She was slightly more nervous than I expected mm-hmm. without ever being anything but composed. Mm-hmm. In other words... It wasn't as though she seemed uh, nervous in the way she responded to questions, but just kind of the look in her eyes sometimes made it seem like she was very kind of on guard um, very early in our conversation, like right away before the tape recorder was was even on. Mm-hmm. Um, she said something like, she was showing me a picture on her phone, and she said something along the lines of like, well, you know, you're a very intuitive person. And I was like, well, we just met five minutes ago. You can't possibly know that. <laughs> and I think that that made her realize, okay, this is an interview. Because mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, you know, Taylor Swift is so different than every other celebrity right now. Uh, like, journalists really want to be her friends, I think. <laughs> I think that like, she's a charismatic person, and she seems to represent so much of of sort of what the, the like, the, female millennial view of the world, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that she's just almost like a, a perfect encapsulation of the best qualities of millennials. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's almost this desire to align yourself with her, and I just, you know, and, I, and maybe that's what she expected. You, these people, a lot, the people that you're interviewing have obviously been interviewed a million times, um, or else they wouldn't be. Partly, they wouldn't be where they are if they hadn't been interviewed a million times, and and they're interviewed a million times because they are where they are. Um, and now I can't remember where I was going with this question. It makes me think of: um, do, do you think they're used to dealing with people who do want to be their friend? Yes, I think they kind of expect it very mm-hmm. often because it's just it's 
is a real common thing. It's just a real common thing, particularly in music journalism, but in kind of in all assets of uh, aspects of this. Sometimes in sports journalism too, where where someone gets into writing about music so they can listen to music and hang out with musicians, mm-hmm. you know, and though that they might be critical of, say, I don't know, Billy Corrigan or something, when they're just talking about Smashing Pumpkins records, when they actually see Billy Corrigan, they almost become uh, just like uh, an extension of what that person is trying to represent. In other words, if the person is trying to represent themselves as, as serious, then they become serious. Or if the person is trying to represent themselves as laid back, then they become laid back. And, you know, it's just... And you know, and the crazy thing about this is, is that in the present tense, uh, like it's much better, I think, to do it the way that I do it. I mean, I have no relationship with these people outside of these interviews. Mm-hmm. However, way down the line, you get rewarded if you did the other thing. In other words, if you're like actually become friends with, you know, the Strokes, or you actually become friends with Kanye or whatever. Your pieces in in the present tense will be bad, but then years later you'll be like, "Well, this is what really happened." You know, it's like right. if you're going to talk to somebody who, uh, if you like, like who would be more interesting to have a conversation about, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin with right now? Would it be someone who covered them in sort of a real serious way, or would it be whoever worked in their publicity department? Right. Well, obviously the latter now. Right. right. Although in 1975 that would not have been the case. Right. How were you when you first started doing this type of, uh, this type of work? Um, I, you 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 started interviewing celebrity like these types of these type of people when you were at the Beacon Journal, right? Or was that even you before? No, I was in Fargo. When I was in uh, my first job out of college when I was twenty two in nineteen ninety four um, was at the Forum newspaper. Mm-hmm. And um, now, okay. There's a limited ceiling for what these celebrities could be with celebrities coming through Fargo. Right. <laughs> but, you know, one of the very first people I interviewed, one of the very first there, um, was Nikki Six of Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. Now, as a kid, Motley Crue was my favorite band through, like, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. You know, I was just obsessed with Motley Crue. I could have never imagined myself talking to Nikki Six. But i got to say, five minutes into the interview, he just became another musician. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I'm, I guess I'm not. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just not like that affected by. Like I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with the concept of celebrity, but not very interested in specific celebrities. I don't know why that is. It makes no sense to right. me. Like I, I love thinking and talking about the idea of what fame means, but I have no real interest or attraction to people who are famous. Mm-hmm. So really, ever since then, I've, I, I, I like I. I can't think of an interview I've ever done that I would say was damaged by my adoration or respect or anything of the individual. Right, right. Yeah, I have I, I have interviewed some people like that, and I just think usually when I was doing it, I was an idiot young person who didn't know how to do an interview anyways. Um, but I remember just being completely, not even being able to think of a question when I was interviewing Norm MacDonald, uh, two weeks after he dropped the F-bomb on Saturday Night Live, I had no idea what to say to him. And then well, I, was in col- I was in college anyway, at the time, too. Because so. he doesn't really give normal answers. But. Right, right. That made it tough, too. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so, anyways. Um, 
I, one thing I keep thinking about, and I'll ask this question, and then maybe we can we'll, we'll take a short break. Um, I, when I read, when I read, especially these celebrity interviews, I, I think about um, your essay, "Something Instead of Nothing," um, which was the first piece in, in your book, "Eating the Dinosaur," um, which really kind of questions the validity, or it makes you think. It makes, it, it, at least, it makes me start thinking. Okay, everything I'm reading, especially when it's been reported, whether it's cele- especially if it's celebrity stuff, like everything is made up. Um, or at least in some way, shape, or form. Do you think about that when you're doing these interviews as well? Well, you know, I had a lucky thing happen in a way. I mean, in some ways, a super lucky thing. This isn't the rarest quality, but it doesn't happen a lot. You know, I spent eight years in newspapers just interviewing people constantly. Mm -hmm. And then I got hired at Spin, and the first year or two there... Uh, I just interviewed people constantly, you know, um, through all, you know, all levels from, you know, in Fargo talking to some, like, local guy who, like, did, you know, ice sculptures with a chainsaw or whatever, up through, you know, to spin with the guys in Radiohead or whatever. And then, because of what sort of ended up happening with my own books, particularly the second book, I started getting interviewed a lot to mm-hmm. By the point it was 2007 or 2008, I was being interviewed more than I was interviewing other people. And uh, that really shifted my perception of what's happening within this experience. Of course, it makes you a more empathetic person, and that probably does make me a better interviewer uh, because I have very mixed feelings about the process. Um, You know... So many times when I was being interviewed, and really, I, one time in specific, right before I wrote that essay, I was I was teaching in Germany at the University of Leipzig for four months. Uh, they they have American writers come over and teach at this you know teaching the American Studies program there, sort of on, you know on a revolving door temporary basis. So I'm in Germany, and because I'm in Germany, some some magazine writers from Norway came to interview me. Now, I'm not exactly sure what prompted them to. I guess it was because they were just, they heard I was there, and they were like, well, you know, these books come out in Scandinavia. Let's talk to this guy about culture or whatever. Now, I wasn't promoting a book, uh, and even if I was, I don't speak Norwegian. I'll probably (laughs) never go to Norway. Okay. So I'm not promoting anything, and even if I was, I would have no context for what that promotion would mean. So I'm sitting with this guy, and I find myself wondering, like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, am I doing it just because I need attention, even if I can't sense that attention? Is it because that since I'm a journalist, I feel an obligation to respond to any journalism journalist request because I've made so many requests to other people? Um, you know, it, it, I was just running through my mind as I was talking to him, like, why am I doing this? And I, I kind of come to the conclusion that it's just an extension of human nature, that when someone asks you a question, you respond to it even if the answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You just, you, 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 you know, and particularly if the question is about yourself and you don't know, then it's very kind of alienating, and you almost feel as though you need to come up with an explanation to explain to yourself this thing that you don't understand about yourself. Right. So, you know, so when I'm talking to, 
you know, I thought this when I was talking to Kobe Bryant. At, at, at times, he was saying things that made me wonder, like, what is his motive for doing this? Is he trying to shape his legacy? Is it that he just wants to tell the truth? Is what he's telling me not the truth, but what the truth that he wants? I, you know, it's, uh, it is something that I kind of think about all the time. I, I think because of the job I have and then sort of the experience I've had as sort of a, you know, as a writer, I probably think about interviewing more than almost anyone I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, and sometimes you wonder if what they're saying, and this is my, my thought as somebody who's interviewed some people, um, you know, in a newspaper career, is they might be saying something, but it, it, it could be the very first time that idea has ever dawned on them. And maybe they're even realizing something about themselves. Well, not just that. But very often, the thing you're asking someone about, particularly an artist, is some is the one thing that bec that just comes incredibly natural mm -hmm. to them. So they really haven't considered the machinery behind it. Right. I interviewed Jack White, of the White Stripes, and I had all of these sort of interesting thoughts, to me at least, about some of his guitar solos that that they meant something to me, or I read something into them. But as I spoke to him, it became very clear that playing guitar solos is just an extension of his sort of unconscious creative mind. And that the solo he comes up with fits the song to him. That, that's as, but I mean, it seemed to be as far as it goes. Now, you know, so of course, when people interview me, well, I'm a writer. So they're asking me questions about writing. And writing might be one of the only things in my life that comes natural to me. So at times, I'm not exactly sure uh, how to answer a question that, when I hear it, seems totally reasonable. Right. And it's very weird not to know the answer to a reasonable question about yourself, since, in theory, we should have unlimited access to our own mind. Like, I should be able to answer any question about myself that's part of my consciousness. I have unlimited access to it, but I can't always do that. Right, and that kind of gets to this idea of, of, especially when it comes to writing, and especially even novelists, and maybe you've experienced this with your two, your two books of fiction, people are always trying to figure out what it is you're actually saying, or yes. what do you really mean, or what does this mean, or why would you put this here? Um, and I've interviewed a, a handful of, of, of literary journalists for, for some annotated stuff, for Neiman Storyboard, and sometimes you ask them, well, that's a great telling detail. Why did you put it there? And they're like, I don't know. That just seemed like the right place to put it. Well, okay, and partially what happens is this. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I know this is true sometimes when writing fiction, right? You write fiction, mm -hmm. and you want people to get something subtextual from it. In other words, you're writing about, you know, a straight event, you, the, you know, plot mechanics or whatever. But your hope is that, that they will not remember the plot mechanics. They, your hope is that they will deduce the feeling from it, the theme from it, maybe the way you really feel is hidden within that text. And you want them to sense it. But when they ask you about it, you don't want to admit it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, if you wanted to admit it, you would have just written an essay and said right. it. Like, you, like if, you, if you have a, especially if you have a view about the world, that you realize would be um, problematic or controversial. You know, you can write it in nonfiction, and then that's just a straight telling of the idea, but then you're sort of attached to the idea. Mm -hmm. The idea becomes an anchor around your neck. And particularly if it's an idea that you don't 
that you believe but you don't 100% embrace. In other words, it's like you have cognitive distance in your mind. You believe lots of things, including one thing that's kind of troubling. So you kind of have it inside of a character in a piece of fiction, and you want people to sense that, but you don't want to talk about it. Like, you just want them to sense it, you know? So that's, I think, a lot when these authors say they don't know. A lot of times they do know, but you got to say I don't know when asked. Right. Like, I have definitely said I don't know to lots of questions about my novels that I did know the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back with more uh, from Chuck Klosterman here on Gangrew the Podcast in just about one minute. This is Gangrew the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, the Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash jdm. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I am here talking with Chuck Klosterman, who has written uh, six books of nonfiction and two, and two novels, books of fiction, uh, and has written, uh, uh, has interviews with uh, T- Tom Brady and Taylor Swift in the most two recent issues of GQ magazine. Uh, Chuck, let's talk a little bit about, um, can, can we talk a little bit about Grantland? I know you were contributing sure. there um, uh, for, since, it, since it kind of was launched, and, and then unfortunately it was, it was shut down maybe about a month ago. What do you, what do you think happened there? Well, I mean, you know, I've been in media for 20-some years. This is the first time I ever saw something this dramatic happen for totally personal reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. essentially, Bill Simmons was the backbone of the site. He came up with it. You know, I was the first person he hired, but everyone else he hired as well. You know, we just kind of, I guess in 2009, he contacted me, and we just started kind of looking for people, putting this together. Um, and, you know, it was... I mean, people say, what happened? Well, I mean, Simmons essentially, they didn't re-sign his contract at ESPN. They, they, they got fired. And, and this was, to a degree, a vanity project. It was mm-hmm. a great vanity project and that it allowed a, a kind of writing to exist that did not have any kind of profit-based underpinnings. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, a, it was at best, at best, a break-even thing, okay? But, you know, ESPN is this huge entity. The budget for Grantland, they can pay for from the ads from one Monday night football game. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of believed to be this thing that uh, that would give ESPN sort of a degree of journalistic credibility and also just like the 30 for 30 series, 
allow people to say things like, hey, you know, ESPN does good work, too. There's, like, good stuff on there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we could just kind of pick the writers we wanted and kind of allow them to do whatever they want. And, and if you had an idea, that was enough. Like, you didn't, that was, that was, if you had an idea that you were interested in, that was enough reason for the story to exist. And when Simmons, uh, you know, got fired, left, however you look at it, you know, um, I think they were like, well, should we do this or should we not do this? And they were surprised, I think, by how much loyalty the staff had to Simmons. And then now Simmons is going to start another Grantland-type thing at some point in the future. He hired four of the principal people from Grantland with him, so they left the site at this, on the exact same day that Dan Fearman, who was uh, you know, kind of at the top of the pyramid, left there after Chris Connolly. He got hired by MTV, and the whole thing just kind of collapsed, mm-hmm. and, and now it's gone. So it's like, you know, it's, a, it's the kind of thing where for it to exist, you need to have someone paying for it who doesn't care whether or not it makes money, and that, that seemed to—I don't know if that's possible. Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you think there are other uh, other outlets for people who who like to write that type of stuff? And, and you know, obviously, if Bill starts up this new site, that would be one. But are there other places for stuff like this that you know of? Well, you know, I guess my answer to that. It's probably not. Mm-hmm. And here's why. I mean, are there places where someone could start a website and say, hey, I want to get the writers I like to write whatever they want? You know, uh, of course, you know, we could do that today. Right. Like we could start that site today. But to get the good writers, you usually have to pay them. Right. And if they want to do a story that's not just them sitting in their living room thinking about stuff, but going to Alaska or going to Japan or going to Ferguson or, you know, or, or spending a, a long or, or, or being able to get the access mm-hmm. to talk to Dan Harmon or to talk to, you know, uh, uh, someone like Tom Brady or whatever. Well, you got to have some, it's got to be something beneath that, you know, mm-hmm. something kind of paying, subsidizing that. So, you know, what is the market for 8,000 words? heavily reported stories about an obscurity. It's pretty small, right? you know? Uh, so it's, you know, the, 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 the sort of almost dream world scenario of Grantland, I don't think that's possible, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, I, I just, I, I don't, unless everyone is wrong about how advertising on the Internet works, because right now it doesn't work enough to support something like right. that. You've got to yeah. have someone willing to pay money and lose it. Yeah. You know. What was your favorite piece that ran on Grantland, and it's and it's short, too short history. Well, I mean, my favorite piece is when I wrote. Actually, <laughs> on the very first day, I wrote a piece about a junior college basketball game that I watched when I was like in high school, mm-hmm. where a team started with a, a tribal school started the game with five players and finished with three and won the game. I'd been right, waiting to write that story my, for years, and there was never any logical place to do it, and there it was. But of course, it's weird to say my favorite story was when I wrote. Right. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite story from someone else... Um, It's a hard answer. I would guess it was either written by Alex Papadimus or Brian Phillips, though. Mm-hmm. One of those two guys probably wrote it. Yeah. But there was so much good stuff on there. I mean, Andy Greenwald wrote about TV on a day-to-day basis in a way that, that you know, 
the consistency of how often he was writing good stuff, you just you don't see that anywhere else because you know this it was this was it was producing content at a daily newspaper rate, mm-hmm. but at a monthly magazine quality, and I just that was that was sort of the amazing thing to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brian Phillips' piece on sumo wrestling, which was in Best American Sports Writing this year, just blew me away. I thought it was an absolutely amazing piece. But again, you're right. How are you going to find another place that will actually give him, pay him to do something like that? Well, what he'll do, I assume, I assume from this point on, you know, uh, he will do, he'll get paid to do the, you know, the back page story uh, for, for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And then GQ will have him do something. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, you know, the, uh, the Atlantic Monthly will pay him to do something. I mean, the thing about it is, for every person from Grantland, their career is pretty stable now. Right. I mean, just any association with that site is going to make a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, well positioned to uh, to kind of do whatever they want. And that, in many ways, will be like one of the underrated legacies of Bill Simmons mm-hmm. is that he took about thirty or forty people who were talented and sort of made their talent uh, visible to the entire country. And uh, you know, kind of inadvertently, probably jump-started uh, long-form writing mm-hmm. in, about sports and culture for the next you know ten or twenty years. I mean, like like uh, Molly Lambert, for example. Like I had heard about her a little bit. I know she was on a website called you know This Recording or whatever. I know she made she she made mixtapes that were really good, and I I just liked her writing, and I told Simmons like, hey. You should look into this person, you know? Well, Molly Lambert's always going to have a career now. Right. I mean, she, like, people saw her writing, and, of course, it was good. And as a, as a, as a the, the ongoing impact will be that she'll have a 30- or 40-year career writing. Mm-hmm. So, like, Grantland was a success no matter what happened. Right. Like, it just was, man. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you prefer to write? Do you prefer to write fiction or nonfiction? Well, nonfiction is easier. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's it's definitely easier to be good at nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, fiction is harder and therefore more satisfying. Uh, I feel better about having written fiction. I enjoy the process of writing nonfiction more. Here again, though, it's like the difference is a little less, I think, than some people seem to perceive, mm-hmm. at least to me. I mean, or maybe that just proves that I don't know what I'm doing, but... To me, it, it, uh, I've, the difference between writing fiction and nonfiction is just sort of the, the you know, straight up the application of fact. Mm-hmm. In nonfiction, you have to say what happened. In fiction, you say what you dreamed happened. But the typing and the structure and all these things, they, they seem relatively similar to me. I mean, I, I, uh, I thought it was interesting that when I started writing fiction, people were like, you've always written nonfiction. How will you write fiction? I realized if I'd written novels first and then went to nonfiction, people would have said the same damn thing mm-hmm. in reverse. I know it. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, what, are you, what are you working on now? Are you are more essays or fiction, or, or what are you working on? I have, a, I have another nonfiction book coming out next summer. Um, and I'm actually just I'm working on the like the final edits of it right now, mm-hmm. so that will come out. Um, I'm also having another kid in January, or my wife's having another kid. <laughs> right, congratulations! So I'm yeah, so I'm kind of back. You know, I, 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 that Tom Brady thing will be the last thing I'll do this year, mm-hmm. and then for three months, 
this will be our second kid. So while my wife is dealing with the new baby, like I'll mostly deal with the two-year-old. And um, then when that's finished, when those three months have passed and they're all in daycare and the book has come out, then I'll kind of figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun talking oh, with no you. no problem. And have, have a great day. Okay, man. I've been talking with Chuck Klosterman. Klosterman is the author of six books of nonfiction and two novels. He's recently interviewed Taylor Swift and Tom Brady for consecutive issues of GQ. We've linked to a lot of his work on our website, which you can find at gangreadapodcast.com. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter. Check us out at gangrepodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. We've also got a Facebook page, so like us to get regular updates. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of 88.9 FM WRDL at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for listening.